then I'll start from Facebook, but um, while I'm doing that, okay, so we're recording now. So, um, hi, Bo again, great, Dave. Um, so yeah, uh, how are things? Is there anything you'd like to share? What's going can you on? Hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Well, good morning and so forth, wherever you are, evening, afternoon to everyone. Um, well, it's a quiet day here. I'm alone here at Odaria for the day. Other devotees are out doing various uh, services and so forth. So um, Chidahari will, will come a little later to do some work. And uh, whoops, hold on. Um, yeah, so I'll be doing some writing as usual today. And uh, excuse me. <laughs> and I've been thinking a lot about the, um, we've been having some discussions here about the, the nature of the G, but it's been interesting. Um, and the uh, implications of the fact that the jiva has will. Mm. So we can say that, for example, all the jivas are the same and they're differentiated materially only by their karma, which is true, but then their will is what determines what their karma is. So on the spiritual side, the same is true, how you worship, um, who you worship, and so forth, determines your status there. But your effort to do so, having had the, been given the opportunity, is an expression of your will. So as I often say, will is, is dynamic and unpredictable. It's, it's uh, what makes us individual at the same time that we're the, we're the same. <laughs> we're all the same, but we're all uniform but potentially kind of a dynamic uh, uniformity hmm? and unpredictable that idea is a little more friendly i think to the to way to speak about nature of of the self hmm? um so for example with regard to the possibility through the grace of bhakti, of attaining a, a sarupa form, a nature that's um, suitable for participating in, in Leela Seva, in, in, in Krishna Leela in particular. Um, the opportunity pre pre presents itself, but there's something within us at the same time that determines to an extent what it will be, and that's our will. Mm -hmm. Bhakti's not inherent, the Sarup's not inherent, but there's something inherent in us that has something to do with our standing. Very interesting subject anyway. It's not something I've been a little preoccupied with talking with Vrindaranya and Gurnishta about. So that's what I've been up to. What are the questions today? Yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, so there's five questions, I think. That's, yeah, so far. Um, and the first one is from Omkar. Okay. Good morning, Omkar. Das. Morning, Jai Guru Maharaj. Um, Finland. Can you hear me? Can't hear you. Can see oh. you. See your lips moving. Um, Did you do mute original audio? Are you asking me? Doing. No, I was asking Omkar. Done. Can you hear me now? Can. Jai, Gurmarash. Nice to see you again. Um, my question would be, actually, as we were speaking yesterday with um, with uh, Krishangi and, and Kamalaksha, who actually um, are doing all kinds of uh, interviews, and I did uh, did one by Hari Priya recently too, and then the photographer asked me if I want to do an interview about um, in Finnish, there's a word um, becoming into faith uh, that doesn't really translate. And that had me think, 
how would you describe uh, this process of, of, as I said, it doesn't translate real well, becoming, becoming into faith would be the way that, that would directly translate it from Finnish. And that really had me think how I would describe that. And I have some ideas, obviously, but to a non-Vaishnav, because it's, it's not a religious magazine. It's a sort of secular release, tabloid. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be interviewed in it for sure, but I was uh, hoping you could say something about that form, forming of faith. Well, uh, I think that we all have faith on, you know, on, on some level uh, and that it uh, largely derives from our experience and one hand and on the other hand from um, the extent to which we have trust in others. Hmm? So let's say, for example, you have trust in, in others and they tell you that if you pay your money here at this uh, airline counter, you can get on a plane and fly to um, the moon or wherever, to San Francisco. Um, so you've never been to San Francisco you're, you, 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 and, and you, but you've been told by people that you've, you've come to trust that this is a possibility. So you, you trust in them. You have faith in that, right? And faith is, in this sense, that, and, and, and as I said earlier, and faith may also derive from experience. Well, I've done it before. I have the experience, so I believe that this will happen again. I'm not speaking anything about faith in God here. I'm just saying faith in general is the animating principle in one sense in life in the Bhagavad Gita Krishna explains faith in this way um, um, doubt in contrast has uh, serves as a suspending function rather than an animating function so when we have doubt we hesitate our movement is suspended. And when we have faith, we're animated. And, and, um, um, and well, animated, moving. Hmm? Um, so this is to speak about it in kind of the, uh, the broadest uh, terms, if you will. And uh, to separate faith from some religious uh, belief. Um, but that said, um, we may come into contact with persons whom we trust um, on a certain level, again, that will tell us about something that we have no experience of, but we, 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 we trust in them. Um, um, Let's take Krishna speaking in the Bhagavad Gita. We'll say we haven't met Krishna, but we've met persons who have um, translated the Bhagavad Gita into Finnish or into English, maybe the case, Polish, Spanish. Um, so I think one of the differences moving in a religious direction from the Bible, let's say, and the, and the Gita, which I referred to earlier, and I'm again referring to now, um, with regard to faith is that uh, the Gita tries to lay out um, for us to consider things that are happening to us that we didn't realize were happening to us. And in this way, to capture our faith. For example, the Gita teaches early on that um, attachment to things is the cause of suffering because our ability to keep anything in this world is limited at best. The English adage here today and gone tomorrow applies to everything. Just give it some time. And even if the things that we are attached to endure and remain in our possession for our whole life, we still can't keep them because our life is temporary. And so being attached to things that we cannot keep is a recipe for frustration, for suffering, for sorrow, 
or anxiety. The more I like the thing, the fact that I can't keep it, the more troublesome it becomes. This is a basic tenet of the Gita, a basic tenet of, of, uh, of, of Vedanta. Mm-hmm. Um, that attachment is the womb from which suffering is born. Uh, we are all suffering in the world to one extent or another. And so the Gita seeks to get at the root cause of that suffering and point it out to us in a, something that's right before our eyes. We can, once it's pointed out, we can see it. So the Gita seeks to capture our faith, our trust, if you will, by pointing out to us things that we could not see um, otherwise, but were right before our eyes nonetheless. Now you might argue about that philosophically in a different way. Hmm? Um, But the logic and the philosophical perspective of your basic Vedanta can contend in today's world with any other form of, uh, of philosophy. And the mainstream of philosophical discourse today is of course materialism. It may be called naturalism or physicalism, but it's basically the same idea that there is nothing supernatural. As an aside, if there's nothing supernatural, there's nothing unnatural either. Hmm? Whether it be oil spills or what, they're also all, it's all just part of the physical movements of, of, of the world, if you will, as an aside. So I'm not a very fa- big fan of physicalism or naturalism or, or materialism. Hmm? Um, and, um, so the argument of Vedanta is that there's, there's something more than physical forces hmm, that makes up the world. You may say, well, I don't have any experience of that, but you have experience of a subject of subjective content. We have experience of subjective and objective content. Hmm? There's feelings in other words, hmm? they're subjective. And there appears to be objective things that we interact with and, and derive feelings from. So to reduce the subjective to the objective and say that the subjective really doesn't exist, it's an illusion, is quite a stretch. Mm-hmm. So Vedanta doesn't uh, do that. It kind of reverses the order and tells us that the objective world really derives from the subjective. Mm-hmm. So anyway, these are long, uh, complicated philosophical arguments, but the point I'm making in brief here is that the argument of Vedanta with regard to the nature of being is, is one that can contend with um, any, any modern thoughts on, on the subject matter. So it's not just some antiquated idea. And it is, it's powerful in terms of generating faith, just like materialistic ideas have power to generate faith in a particular interpretation of data as well. You could get certain data from how the brain works that you didn't know it worked the way it did and realize the brain is just doing something that you thought you know you were doing by your the exercise of your will or something like that. Um, and uh, and uh, and so forth, uh, you know through through other developments in, in, in science and technology we can do things that we couldn't do before. We can end a, end a you know, a, a pandemic, let's say, you know, with a, with a, with a, um, a vaccine um, that previously without which we might've just made a, a, a fire and smoke and chanted some, some words and hoped it would go away. Uh, so, Someone could make that argument. And, and anyway, science over the centuries since, since scientific evolution has produced certain material results that give faith to people. Hmm? And that as a way of knowing and understanding what's taking place and so forth. So, uh, so you develop uh, faith in, in, in authorities in that field and so forth. So again, uh, with regard to faith in God, the Gita, um, is the main text of the Hindus in one sense. And it's about, in the beginning, it's about the nature of being. Rather than asking you to believe, 
It's a discourse on the nature of being and a certain perspective on it hmm, that uh, likely resonates with most uh, human beings in many respects. Hmm. Um, it, it tells you there's a real there's a real self. There's a false self, but there's also a real self hmm, that has uh, that endures. Um, uh, um, and um, exists uh, outside of time and space, so to speak. It can be um, perceived through and experienced through meditation, the result of which, among other things, is a sense of contentment that is so rich that um, it's characterized as, uh, uh, with regard to sorrow, only suffering, feeling for the suffering of others, all sentient beings, universal compassion, One's got to be pretty content to feel to, to only feel suffering by way of understanding that others are suffering and and uh, seek to remedy their pain or um, feel their pain by 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 extension, so to speak. Uh, it's not personal suffering. Um, so so anyway. Um, uh, as the, you know, the Gita progresses, of course, it, it makes a theological argument hmm, as well that Krishna is God, for example. Hmm. But you know, you already are a believer of sorts because things have been shown to you that you didn't realize were happening, and your faith has been captured. Now, if you apply yourself to the teaching further, then the experience of Krishna. As as the Godhead will also um, become your experience. So so anyway, I'm kind of rambling on it, but faith is uh, is as we speak about it is kind of different than than just a belief system. Hmm? Well, you could have a belief system because some, again, because some authoritative person who, who you felt was authoritative in the field told you things you didn't know, and so you you believe you believed them. But in, in bhakti, faith is, yeah, that comes, but, but there's a practice by which faith, by which that, which you've placed your faith in, based on faith in the person, faith in what he or she has said, can be experienced. There are symptoms. You can begin to experience it. It's not just, I believe in this, Hope it's true, and when it's all over, I go to heaven. Something like that. Um, in Vedanta, that's 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 not how we look at uh, faith. We look at that more as a belief system, um, which is a kind of faith, I guess. As I said, you can believe in an authority, but if if uh, you you know uh, if you have reason to believe they're authoritative in their field. You have faith in them. If then you put into practice what they have said and you get the experience, that's uh, a real uh, substantial uh, faith and ground, if you will, to, to, to build upon. And uh, so that's just some thoughts on, on faith. Complicated, but <laughs> what else? Another question? Um, yeah, Eric. Dandavatsa, good morning, Maharaj. Nice to good see morning. you. Um, so, my question is regarding a statement that I heard in a lecture of yours from a few years ago um, as follows. Um, Quote, we should chant and cry that I cannot chant purely. And then when you chant purely, then you will still cry as the gopis are crying. Great devotees are crying. So chant and be unhappy. Uh, unquote. So over the years, I've found that this feeling of sadness that I cannot chant purely has helped me in some ways to be aware of my current material conditioning and try to take my sadhana more seriously. But I've also found that it can be a bit overwhelming and kind of cause me to feel a little discouraged and frustrated. But then when I kind of let go of the expectation and just try to give my best effort and then sort of leave the results up to Krishna per 
the advice of some of the earlier chapters of Bhagavad Gita, I feel a bit more psychologically balanced and not as, uh, I guess, hung up on my present shortcomings. And uh, I've heard several times from other devotees that one should not be too hard on oneself or overwhelmed with their sadhanas. You know, one could get, you know, overwhelmed, burnt out from their feelings of disappointment. So could you please explain how someone could apply this statement about um, crying and sadness in a healthy and sustainable way to one sadhana? Well, I think uh, one has to understand what is sadhana and uh, what is sadhya. Sadhya means the goal and sadhana means the means or the practice by which we attain the goal. And I think that in the Western world, uh, particularly, there is a sense that uh, uh, things should be um, more readily available than they are. Hmm? We live in a credit uh, society so that you can buy things even if you don't have the money now, you can get it now. Um, so there's this sense of, I should have it now. And, and um, maybe we lack some, some patience. Um, uh, so better to understand the goal and the means. And I think that um, in the context and culture in which these teachings arise, um, in the East, uh, that uh, people weren't living in in with a, such sense of uh, immediacy and, and, and a need for things to happen now, so to speak. I mean, you know, things proceed at a much quicker pace now in industrial and information, uh, you know, society compared to an uh, agrarian society when you would, for example plant the field and you know you would have to wait until the fall the autumn to harvest and then there'd be the harvest and there'd be the storing of the food and it would last and through the winter and so on and so forth um, so you know we, everything that you you acquire to make things go quicker and easier makes the world go faster and, and the need to have more things to make it to catch up with it so to speak so, you know, in that culture, then we, we get Krishna consciousness, we, we, we come in touch with bhakti, and the ideal is very attractive. The practice is said to be very easy comparatively to other schools of Vedanta. Um, but, you know, again, that's comparatively. So it's not easy overall. The Gita says, Manushyanam Sahasreshu Kastud. So it's not, it means one in a million will be interested. One in a million that are interested, one in a million of those will come to know me uh, in truth, something like that. It doesn't mean that only one out of a million devotees will come to know him. It means that bhakti is rare, enlightenment is rare. We're talking about the ultimate achievement here. The ultimate achievement uh, that exceeds all other material achievements uh, combined. And what kind of effort do you have to have? What kind of patience and time do you have to put in to be accomplished in any particular field materially? If you want to win a gold medal in the Olympics, you know, you have to train for years and years and so forth, or in other, other realm of sports, or if you want to be um, you know, a star and, excuse me, uh, a noted musician, artist, uh, as may be the case and so forth. This, this takes time. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, they do say it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's another thing. But, you know, the same applies. We, if we know Krishna, well, you got you got an easier way, so to speak, than that. And if he's unidentified, the absolute is undifferentiated. But Krishna says that in the Gita, the path of bhakti is easier than the path of Gyan. Um, but um, uh, I think that if you you know you have this a better idea, this is a long haul here. This is uh, uh, I have been 
moving in the opposite direction since the time without, you know, uh, beginning. So now I'm beginning in, in, in this direction, maybe not at beginning in this life, but beginning in this life to be conscious and aware of this is what I'm doing and, and uh, it will take time. So I think that if you know that, um, how, how uh, extraordinary is the ideal of Prem Bhakti? I mean, you can tie up Krishna, like Mother Yasoda did. That's like pretty extraordinary. If you understand that Leela, for example, Mother Soda is tying Krishna up. Um, he allows her to tie him up, given her effort. Hmm? I mean, you couldn't get more, what, what higher goal could you achieve hmm? to capture him with effort to, 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 to love him? The whole, he within whom everything is contained, you, you contained him. I mean, it's just, it's just mind boggling ideal it's not going to come about very easily you can talk about brain you can learn about what to say that's not easy to do what the theory is but you can learn what to say but um do you know what to do and do you do it <laughs> that's uh, those those two steps are are another thing and you could do it without knowing it it's, it's also possible in detail um uh, so uh i think that you know to have that big picture how glorious how extraordinary is the goal and it's hard to like think of something else as the goal in comparison to live in braj and to participate in what it's the nature of leela and so forth these are very very attractive ideas um i can't find anything that's more attractive interesting compelling and so forth so it's worth uh worth worth waiting for and um and to be on the path is is glorious in and of in and of itself comparatively so you know uh, i'm saying it's a long haul it, it takes a long time to make progress um at the same time the progress you've made if you look at the big picture is also extraordinary one time one of my gobbers asked pushpat shudamar said uh, today is my birthday, he said, and I'm feeling bad. I know I've made any progress. He said, what do you mean? You know, you've got a human birth. You've got a sadguru. Uh, you're, you're in an avadweep. <laughs> I mean, comparatively to so many others, what is what is your position? It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Jalaja Navalakshani, he put, you know, passed through 84 million, million 400 and whatever is some thousand species of life. You've got a human life. How far you've come, you know. So when you have the broad picture, you've got patience, and, and at the same time, you can have enthusiasm, which is a recipe for making progress in bhakti, as Rupa Goswami has explained in his Upadeshamrita. The combination of patience and enthusiasm. So, and when we sit before a very spiritually advanced person, we will feel like we are nowhere. But that we have the possibility to go as far as you can, as high as you could possibly go at the same time. These are two conflicting kind of feelings. So I think you know it. It requires um, keeping the whole picture in mind. Then you can you can weep as Mahaprabhu does in the second verse of Shikshastakam. He's he's weeping there. I have no attraction, despite the fact that Krishna Nam is is as merciful as, as he is, is as powerful as he is, in, in, imbued with all of his shaktis, hmm. still I have no attraction because I have an arthas, other, I mean, because I have other values that I've uh, placed, uh, um, given more, more, more attention to, this is my unfortunate condition. Hmm. Uh, okay, so you understand your unfortunate condition in a healthy way, and you're doing something, but you're doing something about it. Hmm? And you're trying to do it in such ways to, as to make an interim goal of becoming steady in that. Hmm? Um, and, and keeping the real value of um, frame, you know, in mind and, 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 and foremost. So I think thinking about it philosophically that, that, and looking at the bigger picture helps us to have a healthy perspective. So, you know, you can give a lecture 
again, back to where I began, my answer to your question, someone from India who's a householder and speak about renunciation and so forth, and they're not bothered by it. They know, yeah, that's true, but this is my condition, alas, and but Krishna's merciful, so I'm going. Whereas someone from the West might, you know, think, ah, I'm going to go throw, give everything up right now. I've got to run and do this immediately. And, and then they may fall on their, on, their, on, their, on their face because that's not so easy. It's not necessarily bad that they did that. They developed some tendency for it. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, they do have to become acquainted with the fact that it's, a, it's, it's understandably a long, long road. Does that help? Yes, thank thank you very much, Maharaj. That that helped a lot. <laughs> okay, good. good. Yeah, I appreciate that question too and the answer. Um, so Govinda Dasi had a question, um, and Shama Sundar translated it, put it in the chat, but I'm gonna read it. Okay. So the question is. Considering that a few days ago um, was the appearance day of Janava Devi, there is um, not much written about her apart from a brief description and some leelas. Can you share some of the um, ontological, uh, what do you share? Can you share with what the ontological position of Janavi Devi is? Um, what is her contribution to the Sampradaya? Janavadevi Kijai. Uh, well, um, there are different opinions about that, but, um, and I've written an article about it. It's an appendix to my book, but I did, it was published early on the Harmonist. Um, you need to publish the edited edition uh, version of that, but, um, so there's a lot of information there. Um, and you can look up that article. But uh, that said, of course, uh, Janava Devi is the uh, principal consort of Nityananda Prabhu. So deference to Nityananda Prabhu is, uh, is something that all uh, wise devotees of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu have. He personally, uh, on numerous occasions, made an, an effort to point out to his devotees, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, did, the importance of Nityananda Prabhu, who might be misunderstood because of his unorthodox uh, type of approach. Um, but um, uh, at a certain point, um, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu uh, told him to marry, and uh, that, uh, in the context of ministering to household people in Bengal, and um, apparently Chaitanya Mahaprabhu reasoned he would be better suited to go places um, to deliver people um, than he himself, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, would as a sannyasi. Uh, sannyasis are supposed to keep themselves in certain company and so forth. If they're seen in places of ill repute, then people will think that uh, that they're uh, morally compromised. So while he accepted sannyas as a strategy to um, capture the faith of others, there were some limits to how much that facility that 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 um, that strategy would facilitate that. So to compensate for that, he has to be in back from Puri to do that. And so he married Janava and um, her sister. They are related to um, Subal Saka's uh, family. And um, it's obviously very extraordinary to be the, uh, and, and amongst the two, um, uh, sisters, I think they may have, may have been twins, but uh, Jonathan it, it has played a more prominent role in the Sampradaya. So, after the passing of the Dinanda Prabhu, which 
to a large extent included the passing of his principal associates, although some of them remained on and lived a longer than him. Uh, after his passing, Janova, uh, who had um, took a took a uh, was uh, was accepted, I should say, as a as a spiritual authority um, herself, and. Um, she initiated, uh, she didn't have any children, but she initiated uh, some, some students, um, uh, some young ones also, Virabhadra, Ramai Thakur, uh, who she adopted, if you will. And uh, they became very prominent, especially Vir Chandra Goswami. Um, but uh, in the course of um, her developing and playing a prominent role in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, uh, she went to Vrindavan. And I think she went more than once to Vrindavan. And uh, the basic idea of going to Vrindavan, of course, is, is, is something that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu also did. But furthermore, to have the association of the Goswamis there who were writing deeply theologically about the import of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's descent. So she became acquainted with the Goswamis teachings and um, opposed to her husband Nityananda Prabhu was in Sakyarasa she um, expressed the, a um, affinity for attraction for Madhurya Rasa and so in the line of Nityananda Prabhu where she had now was now playing a prominent role and with the passing of the Dwarasakal Pauls um, the line of Nityananda Prabhu took on, through her, a more direct um, connection with an opportunity to participate in Madhurya Rasa. Nityananda Prabhu was, was, this, was uh, speaking about the virtues of Madhurya Rasa and pointing to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in terms of his dispensation, but many of his associates developed attraction for him and for Sakya Rasa. So with, with Janava taking the, the lead at a certain point, Madhurya Rasa became prominent in the lineage of Nityananda Prabhu as well. Bhaktivinotakur comes in the lineage of Nityananda Prabhu from Janava, for example. So, um, so uh, she was a proponent, strong proponent of, of Madhurya Rasa. And when she went to Vrindavan, at some point uh, in one of their visits, she had a darshan of, of of, of, of the deity of Gopinath Krishna, and a temple was established there. And um, the deity of Krishna, Gopinath, and Radha were established. But the deity of Radha, as I recall, was very small. And so when she went to Bengal, she had a larger deity of Radha crafted and sent to Vrindavan, thinking that it would at least externally, the idea was thinking that it would be more appropriate to have a, a deity that was closer in, in size to the deity of Gopinath. But when the deity arrived, then the Pujaris intuited that, that, um, that this was actually the deity of Radha. And then they saw the small deity as, as the younger sister of Radha, Ananga Manjari. And um, so they identified um, Janava with the um, younger sister of Radharani in the Brajalila. They did that. Um, I don't. They did that with the help of Ramai Thakur, who was, um, as I said, one of the initiated disciples of uh, of Janava who then started a, his own school that in some respects uh, differed from the Goswami's perspective on the Dinana Prabhu and Balaram. Hmm? And um, um, 
Well, he was a great devotee, and there's certainly evidence to that effect. That that difference was one that didn't really catch on, so to speak, and become mainstream in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Uh, ideas, for example, that uh, Janava was uh, was Anangamanjari, which has been accepted um, in the Braj Lila, but that uh, that. Uh, that um, extended, I should say, to give Balaram, Nityananda Ram, a role in Madhurya Rasa uh, as well. It's not uh, found in the teachings of the Goswamis, Chaitanya Charitamrita, and so forth. So it's a, it's a long discussion, but it went in that direction. Um, but the more um, widely accepted, I would say, orthodox position on Janava is that um, that she is a incarnation in Gorlila of Rebati, who is the wife of Balaram in in uh, in Krishna Lila, in married her in, in Dwarka, and that she's also a partial manifestation of Ananga Manjari, who is a Shakti of Balaram. I think the point here, relative to the departure from the theology of the Goswamis on the part of Ramayi Thakur, is more that, uh, well, because Ananga Manjari is the younger sister of Radharani, and she's the Shakti of Balaram, Balaram is, uh, and thereby Nityananda Prabhu, is also Ananga Manjari, and therefore he's tasting Madhurya Rasa. A, but I mean, that's a problematic idea. So yeah, yes, Ananga Manjari is the Shakti of Balaram, but Balaram is Balaram, Ananga Manjari is Ananga Manjari. Rod is the Shakti of Krishna. They're, they're one, but they're, they're different too. They're one in Tattva, they're different in Bhava. If they weren't, then there'd be no need for Krishna to wonder what it was like to experience Radha's uh, position, he does wonder that, and that's Chaitanya Vaishnavism. So uh, it's a, a little bit of a complicated discussion, but anyway, the orthodox position is not not that, but that Ananga Manjari has uh, appeared, the sentiments, the, the bhava, uh, along with that of Raivati, in the person of um, Janava, who's the consort of Nityananda Prabhu. And she's a proponent of, uh, strong proponent of Gaudiya Vaishnavism and of the theology of, of the Goswamis and with an emphasis on Manjari Bhava. Mm-hmm. Janava Devi Kijai. What else? Um, Indra? Maharaj, Hare Krishna, all devotees, I hope you're well. Um, so I also have a question about like Radharani. Um, so we have um, the sign here at home. I think you can see it. And so you can see like uh, the lotus feet of Srimati Radharani are slightly bigger than Krishna's. And so, um, you know, I also heard, you know, like uh, Krishna is like, you know, very mature for his age and everything. But uh, also in, you know, like old Indian movies, like Sri Krishna Leela, for example, like Radharani is portrayed as like, a, like you know, bigger as in, in, in height and in size and everything. And so we had like a Namahata before the pandemic. And, um, you know, all the Indian devotees, they were saying like, yeah, yeah, Srimati Radharani, she's older, she's older. And all the Western devotees, uh, because maybe of their, because of their like aesthetic, they were like, no, no, she has to be smaller, <laughs> you know, the, the, the um, Krishna has to be bigger. So I was just wondering, um, what do like the scriptures really say? Or is it also like very ambiguous? Um, as there are like so many different stories, I just really want to, I want to know the truth. <laughs> so yeah, thank you. There are different, there are different stories. Um, that's true. And um, different perspectives. But the Gaudiya Vaishnava position is that amongst the uh, texts that constitute uh, revelation, scripture, um, the Bhagavatam holds the uh, 
most important position, Srimad Bhagavatam. The text of the Bhagavatam itself says that it was written by Vyas in his most mature stage, after everything else had been written. There was a Bhagavad Purana along with the other Puranas. But after the story in the Bhagavatam is that, um, that Vyas was not content after um, manifesting all the sacred texts. And that Nar, his guru, advised him, it's because you have not emphasized bhakti sufficiently and overtly. And so the Bhagavad Purana was edited again in such a way as to, as to bring that out. And um, and um, along with many, many arguments, Jiva Goswami and his Sattva Sandarbha has established for us that, uh, with good reason, that the Bhagavatam amongst all the sacred texts takes the central position. So they, they should be understood in relation to the Bhagavatam. So where are we going to get a definitive answer to the question, is Radharani older than Krishna, younger? bigger or smaller, right? So the answer is that she's younger than Krishna. This comes out in, in, in the Bhagavatam and in the works of the Goswamis and a little shorter too. <laughs> Not too much. But she's bigger, that said, in another way. She's bigger and older because girls mature more earlier than boys. So age may be evaluated by quality rather than quantity. You may be 16 years old, but you may have the maturity of a 21 year old, it's possible. Now Krishna's mature for his age, that's true, but still, girls mature quicker than boys. Radharani is even more mature, you can say. She's older in that sense, and she's bigger in the sense that Krishna is actually um, dependent upon her love. As a Shakti, from a Tattva point of view, the Shaktis are dependent upon Bhagwan, but from a Bhav point of view, from the Tattva point of view, they're one. They have no independent existence, the Shaktis, with Bhagavan. But from the, from that's, that's a Vedantic, but from the Bhava point of view, the Bay, the difference comes. So different feelings. So there's, so, so, um, from the Bhava point of view, Radharani is bigger than Krishna. From the Tattva point of view, Krishna is bigger than Radharani. So, She's bigger because, she, because he's dependent on her, her love, as Prabhupada wrote in his poem hmm, aboard the Jaladuta. In order for his life to be successful, it depends on Radharani being pleased with him. Hmm. Prabhupada used to say, everyone is teaching in a, in a religious world that God is the most worshipable. We worship all types of things, um, but God is the most worshipable. But in our teaching, we are teaching who the worshipable object of God is. That's Radha. So Krishna is, so Radha is bigger than Krishna. So some texts may portray her to be bigger. And sometimes they, in order to depict that artistically, she may be made bigger. So she's bigger and smaller, older and younger. <laughs> but as far as age-wise, born-wise, quantitatively, she's born after Krishna, shortly thereafter. Okay? Hare Krishna. Um, so I have a question, yes, that really clarifies it, but there is also the, the story where she is um, blind. Um, and I mean, not blind, but, you know, she doesn't open her eyes yeah. until Krishna comes. Where This is, doesn't come from the Bhagavatam then? Or... No. Um, I think that's probably oral tradition and so forth, but that that, that is a story that um, is supporting the theology of the Bhagavatam. 
So if we tell a story to support the theology of the Bhagavatam, then it's a real story. In other words, the story, what the story is saying, Radharani was 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 born and she she couldn't see, right? But then Nanda Maharaj brought baby, baby Krishna over, and as soon as Krishna came, since she opened her eyes, so her eyes are only for Krishna. She's looking everywhere only for Krishna. Wherever she looks, she only she, she only sees Krishna. She doesn't see anything else. Everything reminds her of Krishna. So that's the theology. So the story is teaching the theology. And if it teaches it correctly, the theology of the Bhagavatam, then it's a real story. Then it's a real Leela. Does that help? Cool. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. awesome. It is cool. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Anything else? Another question? Um, Mahara had a comment on the last question, um, not Indra's oh, okay. question. Good morning, Guru Maharaj. Morning. <clears throat> I just wanted to um, say that this morning I just happened to be reading uh, Yadunanda Acharya's Karnam Nanda, and in there he said that Janava Devi asked Nityananda to write Prem Velas. Well, I just I don't wanted to say that I read that. I don't, there's a fellow named Nityananda who wrote a book named Prema Vilas, but that's not Nityananda Prabhu. There's a Nityananda Das. Okay. Prema Vilas. Now, I'm not sure how our Sampradaya looks at, Prima, at that particular book, Prema Vilas. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, so, and I haven't seen it, but uh, it's not. It's not Nityananda uh, Ram, Nityananda Das. Okay, nice to talk with you all. I think there may be some questions we didn't get to, but uh, we can get, get to them next week. <laughs>